Welcome to this week's edition of The Vasey View. This is my regular podcast where I explore the links between tech and public policy. And I sometimes go on tour. I go on virtual tours. I've been to France. I've been to Estonia. I've been to Holland. I've been to Israel, looking at how these countries put together their tech policies. And sometimes I take a deep dive into a sector like agritech or cybersecurity. And sometimes I talk to big picture policy thinkers like Benedict Evans or Tony Blair or Malcolm Turnbull. I'm delighted to welcome Kaifu Lee to my podcast. Now, I first came across him when I read his book, AI Superpowers, which is really a headline as a book about the AI arms race, if you like, between China and the US. But what I loved most about it was actually the insight it gave me uh, who's not a global investor, into how Chinese companies go about their business, Chinese tech companies, in terms of competing with each other. And Kaifu painted this vivid picture of companies constantly innovating, stealing other companies' ideas, undermining their competitors and just going for broke. And it was sounded absolutely kind of amazing and exciting. Uh, and that was a wonderful insight. So whenever I see uh, anyone, I always recommend the book, not because of about AI, but actually because I think it just gives a wonderful insight into Chinese business practice, which is not meant to be a pejorative phrase in any shape or form. Different cultures do, do things differently. And for somebody who hasn't lived or worked in China like me, it's a wonderful insight. But then I saw Kaifu a few days ago. He was over... Uh, speaking at Tony Blair's important conference, which I think reinforces the point that Kaifu is a very, very important thinker in terms of tech policy, uh, which is why I wanted him on here. And I think he's put together a very innovative new book, which is called AI 2041. And it is about 10 visions for our future, looking at what things might look like in 20 years time. But what I really liked about it was that each uh, section starts with a science fiction short story. And I remember going to a conference a few years ago with a company called Improbable, where I met a guy who specialized in getting science fiction authors to write stories for companies. And I'd never come across this idea before. And of course, when you read Kaifu's book, you understand the point exactly. You write a compelling narrative to imagine the future, which brings it alive. And then Kaifu follows up with a sort of technical and detailed analysis of what is likely to happen in terms of technology. So I loved it for that. And I'm going to try and theme our discussion, so it's not just a question of going through all 10 chapters, each one interesting as they are, but Kaifu, uh, I've spent a long time introducing you. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you, Ahead. It's great to be here. Tell us a bit about your career. Let's start just a bit without you, because I've, I've plunged straight into why I wanted to talk to you, but tell our listeners about your career? Uh, sure. I was uh, born in Taiwan, grew up in the US. And when I went to school, AI really fascinated me because I thought this was the human race final step to understanding ourselves. So I jumped in. And this was school in the 80s, 1980s? It was 79 to be specific at Columbia University, where they barely had any AI program, but I decided I want to do AI anyway. And then I went on to Carnegie Mellon, and did AI, and uh, I did two interesting things. One was developing an Othello program that be the world champion. Of course, Othello is a much, much easier game than Go or chess, but that was 1980s. The second was uh, developing the world's first speaker independent speech recognition system, which became the basis of a lot of products today. And after that, I went on to work at Apple, uh, SGI, Microsoft, and Google. 
mostly running AI projects, technologies, and products. But at Google China, I founded and developed Google China. And that was through 2009 when I left to found Sinovation Ventures, which is my VC firm today, where we invest in deep tech technologies. And you invest mainly in Chinese deep tech, is that right? Mostly. We are about 90% Chinese, maybe 10% outside China. Let's start with, I mean, it's a bit of a cliche to start with an overview about AI, but I think you and I share the same view that artificial intelligence is not some sinister technology that's going to take over the world and make uh, humans redundant. What's your kind of use case overview of AI in the next 10 or 20 years and what relatively normal people should be thinking about? Well, think of AI not as our brain. It doesn't function like our brain. It functions like a computer's brain. So it basically eats up data. So for any given problem, if you have a ton of data, the chances are AI can go through the data millions of times and come up with really smart characterizations, clustering, classification, decision-making, predictions, but it's all within specific domains on typically simple problems. So we think of AI as you know, wanting to be uh, you know, controlling the universe and smarter than us and super intelligence. That's not anywhere in the horizon. What AI is good at is give it a specific problem, like translating from languages to one language to another, or coming up with the best videos that we each individual might like or coming up with a summary of an article or answering a question by looking at it in, in all the text that exists uh, out there. So it's about um, very smart data-driven intelligence. What's required is a lot of data and relatively limited domains. So what it's actually gonna do are the routine kinds of things that we do and not the most, uh, most creative or complex things that we do. So it's actually very complementary to humans right now. There's nothing that says it can't become super intelligence one day, but that's not the current trajectory and capabilities of the state of the art. And just to knock one cliche on its head, the Google engineer who claimed that his uh, program had become intelligent because it started reflecting on the meaning of life. That was a bit of a red herring. Uh, yeah, I suspect he was not an engineer. Uh, I, <laughs> I, think, I think he was in the uh, ethics program and maybe from his pure observation standpoint, I think he's seeing something that appears from his non-engineering background to perhaps require really strong intuition or intelligence. But all the machine was doing was pattern matching and giving the best probability results that it could. And it happened to really, I think, shock people on how insightful it was on that specific example. But uh, anyone who works on the algorithm knows that the current state of the art is anything but sentient. It's a super large pattern matcher that's uh, really good at crunching numbers and optimizing results and targeting and personalizing content. Let's turn to your book and the 10 use cases that you uh, set up. Actually, most of the listeners to this podcast, because I do it for an M&A firm called Liontree that specializes in technology, but it also specializes in entertainment, will be entertainment executives and your use case for AI and entertainment is about immersive games, virtual reality. What's your vision for what AI is going to be doing in the next 20 years to the world of entertainment? Well, I think entertainment is about creating content and uh, evoking emotions from people. And I think that's something that currently 
is already well in place. If people play with uh, TikTok or uh, Instagram or um, YouTube, they're already using AI that's connecting what the AI algorithm thinks what he or she wants by selecting from billions of possible videos of saying, well, which one might I show this person to get them really interested or excited based on previous behavior? That is when you look at a video, you either watch it or close it or move on or you share it. And some of these actions shows a strong level of interest. So basically what AI is doing is showing you more of what you have shown interest in in the past. And it's very, very good at that. But going to the next step, we could ask the question, why should we just match your interests with existing inventory of videos? Why don't we synthesize a video for you? And that seems very far-fetched, but it's not. I think today we can already synthesize text that gets people's interest. Then matching, uh, creating images was recently demonstrated by OpenAI. And I think next we'll be synthesizing videos. So I think in three or four years, we will see apps that will synthesize videos that never existed before, uh, no one's ever seen before. But when you see it, you, you find it terribly exciting, find it irresistible that you have to watch it. Uh, the same video might be interesting to some number of people, but it might also be very boring to others. So the power of AI is that it can synthesize something just to your taste. So it's um, very targeted, very accurate, and potentially very uh, habit-forming and addictive. Now, going one step beyond that, uh, why should it just be a video? What if it's an immersive environment, a game, a metaverse, so that it can create an environment that you can be, if you love superheroes, you can be that superhero. And if you love some princess in Disney, you can be that princess. So it creates the opportunity for us to role play what we want in an environment that is immersive, compelling, and vivid, and feels almost like the real world. I think that is the ultimate vision of entertainment and gaming. That's the best of movies, uh, which includes uh, scripts and uh, cinematography and vividness and games, which is interactivity and fun, but also add on that what TikTok and other social apps can do, which is targeted, personalized and developed just for you. So when these three things converge and we're able to wear a headset, which in which we can see and hear and feel through things we might put on our gloves or our bodies and, and smart treadmills, and all of these things essentially puts us in a ready player one kind of an environment. And I think that's probably around 10 years away and it will be incrementally developed with you know, smarter personalization from text to images, to videos, to games, to environments. And it will have smarter AI uh, that will generate what you want and interact with you, keep you entertained, feel like you're talking to other humans in fun environments. I think this path will go grow very, very fast. And I think the excitement about metaverse plus AI will become realized. But I do think some of today's euphoria about the near-term realization of metaverse is probably over-optimistic. It'll take a good five to 10 years to develop. But it will be these incredibly immersive experiences. And I guess the question one always asks is sort of twofold. One is a sort of question of isolation, that I'm sitting at home in this immersive world and therefore cut off from the real world. But I guess in one way, I'm not, because I'll be interacting with players 
or viewers, as it were, from all over the world. I'll have a global community that I can tap into. So in theory, every home might have a inverted commas games room where you immerse yourself hmm. uh, in a world. But I guess the other thing, particularly for creatives listening to this, working in entertainment companies is, again, I'm going to come out with a random set of cliches throughout this interview, but does this now remove human creativity serendipity that bit where you you know netflix is already doing it to a certain extent if you like this you'll like this but stumbling upon a great piece of entertainment that you might not otherwise are you just shoved down a lane because of your previous taste by your ai engine i think there are two elements involved in here first i don't think the human creativity will be gone just like today you know the tiktok videos are made by amateurs but ai targets them we get excited but we still long for brilliant movies or um, uh, TV shows created by people, which AI is not yet able to do. So I think we'll still have that uh, humans create some long, deep uh, content uh, and AI is more instant gratification, targets what you want today. And also I think in terms of whether AI will continue to lead people down the path of only seeing things they want and not seeing things that are beyond their past history or experience, clearly we need to improve on that. Today's AI is very much programmed by the, let's say, social networks, uh, the likes of Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat, TikTok. And their primary goal in life is to get more clicks and watch eyeballs, because the more we click, the more we watch, the more money they make. So they then will tend to, the AI algorithms will tend to show us more of similar genre that if we're very liberal, it'll show us liberal content. If we're very conservative, it'll show us conservative content. If we show some sign of liking violence, they'll show us more violence. If we see signs that people love music, they'll show us more music. So that will, that is happening to some extent because that's the low hanging fruits. I do think the AI scientists and the AI engineers working in these companies need to look beyond the instant gratification. I would like to see that in the future, uh, we'll be able to explore, look at novel content that when AI is evaluating what to show you, it should have more sophistication. It shouldn't just think what will elicit another click or three more minutes of watching. It should think what might be in the long term good for you, for you to become smarter, more knowledgeable, more well-liked. It should also think about what are now some things that I don't know if you'll like, but there's no reason to think you, you would you would hate it, then maybe I should explore every day, show you a few novel things, then the AI will get to know more about you because it didn't know that part about you. And you'll be able to see novel things and learn new novel concepts. So that idea of blending, not just getting instant gratification, but looking at long-term benefits and looking at short-term novelty and exploration, that combination, how to do that and combine them in an AI algorithm today is not well understood. And I hope researchers will work on it and then product companies will integrate them. And one of your related chapters, as it were, is, and the early chapter in, in your book is about deep fakes, which are, I guess last year, there was a big flurry of interest in the power of deep fakes. And there's the famous Obama video of Obama being rude about President Trump. And your chapter imagines this world of constant cat and mouse games between deep fake creators 
and deep fake detectorists and this thesis that the line in terms of visual communication the line is increasingly blurred by this extraordinary technology but you also think potentially that deep fakes could help reduce crime as well what is your thesis i mean i i would say that last year when i started looking at deep fakes i did a podcast on deep fakes with a woman called nina schick who wrote a book about the threat of deep fakes that really is to me a kind of dystopian world where it becomes increasingly difficult to tell the truth and increasingly difficult to stop a potentially quite catastrophic viral video, which looks to all intents and purposes real. Yeah, deepfakes is one uh, manifestation of a technology called GAN, G-A-N. They are called uh, genetic adversarial networks that basically have two AI algorithms. One tries to fake things and one tries to catch fakes. So they both keep growing as applied to deep fakes. What happens is websites and authenticators of the future will just have to have more powerful computers and more time to catch more deep fakes. That's, I think, an, a, a required path that we have to march down towards. In my book, AI 2041, I talk about a couple of possible solutions that can permanently get rid of deep fake, but they'll probably take 15 years or longer maybe even 20 years or longer. So I did outline those. So that means for the foreseeable future, from now to let's say 15 years, we as a society will have to get used to, when we see a video, just don't immediately assume it is real. It's just like when we see a paragraph of text on the internet, we've now learned there's fake information, there's people profiting from this, there's people doing it maliciously. So there's urban legends and, and we start to apply a filter for ourselves that when we see something that's doubtful, we want to verify it before we believe. And that's something societal that needs to be done. But also I wanna point out that GAN as a technology is the same technology that on the one hand fuels this terrible thing called deepfakes but it's the same technology that makes the creation of amazing entertainment possible, right? So if we have a movie, we can imagine movies being created by putting faces and um, other textures and maps on other things. Essentially, you're taking a 3D structure or an existing video and changing the content as one way to create video and, or a game. So I think uh, there can be very positive uses in entertainment, in training, and in many other areas where the GAN technology can create lifelike video that's useful to us, whether for entertainment, education, or something else. Uh, if so happens, one of the negative applications is to create deep fakes. And I think we as a society, first, I think, need to see that GANs are technology. They'll lead to good and bad things. We can't just write off the whole thing just because there's one bad thing you can do with it. We don't you know, rule out nuclear technologies, energy, just because you can make nuclear bombs out of them. Uh, the, the other thing I think we need to do is to um, educate a society that stop believing in every video you see. And also we need to work on technologies that can eradicate the bad guys who can currently pretty easily put out fake videos, but we need to put up protections on websites, have websites use a lot of compute power to detect them and remove them and also longer term solutions using blockchain and other solutions. So I think we'll, we'll just need to evolve and uh, use technology as a way to eliminate the, or at least reduce the problem.
So, as I said at the beginning, the thing that most interests me is the, is the nexus between technology and public policy. And two of your chapters cover two of the main public sector areas in which politicians get involved. One is education and one is healthcare. And you also link uh, robotics as well in healthcare. And for these, these two areas for me are the most exciting, partly because I think that education, certainly in the UK, is stuck in a kind of 19th century model still despite the advent of technology of a teacher at the front of the classroom teaching a group of kids who he or she does not have much capacity to distinguish between in terms of ability. And obviously in healthcare, we are stuck with a model in the UK, at least, that was set up after the Second World War. And there is all this technology coming down the line. And, and what unites the two public sector areas is, is this concept of personalization, uh, which AI enhances not just personalization, but rapid diagnosis, if I can put it that way. So in education, you talk, for example, you talk about a personal companion who uses neural language processing so that the pupil can have, as it were, a human-like teacher with them at all times. But also this, what I completely share with you, this critique about the one-size-fits-all education and being able to create a personal learning curriculum. And of course, in healthcare, the obvious, again, in terms of personalization is you know, me, Ed Vasey, AI being able to give me a unique health check diagnosis and potentially create tailored drugs for my condition. When are we going to start seeing this kind of being implemented? And I'd also, although it's not necessarily your personal skill set focus, given how difficult it is to change anything in the public sector, how is this change going to come about? Yeah, I think you're very right. The power of AI is one of the power of AI is that it can do different things for different people. Uh, that's something we cannot generically do. So in healthcare today, let's say for, let's take a look on the bright side, right? TikTok and YouTube, they show us all the videos we want to watch, but the videos you want to watch and the videos I want to watch versus our kids, what they want to watch are completely different. Yet AI can take our previous viewing history and uh, user action to show us more things that we're more likely to like. So to extrapolate this to education, we can also find what the kids like. For a kid that loves basketball versus Disney princesses, you can show different math problems that are built on things that they like. And also for kids that are very fast in learning a mathematical concept versus ones that are more slowly, learning more slowly, you would also target different curriculum and speed and problems and exercises and encouragement and so on. So that ability to target is very, very important. Uh, similarly in healthcare, right? Why should we all get the same medicine just because we're the same illness? It might very well be that my illness comes from family history. You're, you may have the same illness, but it might come from genetics or a third person might come from something else. So having AI analyze a much larger pool of people and find out all of their epigenetics and history and, and uh, all the daily measurements of everything and all the illnesses they've had, AI can come up with a much more targeted so-called precision medicine that might give you and I different treatments or different medicines, even though we have the same illness. So that capability to do precision medicine, I think will end up with a much higher cure rate and efficacy for the drugs invented. So the amount of time this will take, I think will be a combination of, well, first, how do we gather the data so we can teach the AI? And two, how can we find the business model 
in which whoever makes the software has prospects of making money. Otherwise, there would not be the economic motivation and the resources to build up a team to do this work. And third, of course, there needs to be government regulations that permit these new things from coming to the market. So I think it's probably difficult for the government to mandate AI because it's not yet proven. Uh, I'm very confident it will work, but it's, it's not yet proven. So probably what has to be done is either in academia or in the entrepreneurial space, people have to demonstrate that as a non-standard process, uh, this is something that adds value. So perhaps some university can try some non-harmful uh, ways of treating different people with different backgrounds differently and see if they can statistically show improvement. And maybe some private tutoring companies want to look at how to teach kids differently and show that it improves their uh, retention or scores or uh, love for learning. That is a very very interesting point because I mean I've been talking about the personalization of the curriculum for 20 years when I mm. sat on the board of edXL 20 years ago and they talked about how through SATs you could work out what kids are good at and what they're not and then focus and it's interesting that there isn't a kind of you know your average tutoring company certainly in the UK will, will be exactly the same as the school you know hire a great tutor and teach your kids for the exam no one is marketing tutoring. There is no private sector startup out there saying we're going to use AI to work out what your kid is good at and what your kid is not good at, which is a huge opportunity. As I say, I think this stuff takes so long to manifest itself as a public sector. But one thing that in healthcare, personalized drugs may be somewhere away, but one thing where I think we will make rapid progress very quickly is AI in diagnostics. So being able to read x-rays yeah. quickly and also AI in data, taking a whole bunch of healthcare data for one specific disease, lung cancer, for the sake of argument. I say that as I vape during this podcast and being able to detect trends and anomalies that can then be useful for medical treatment. Yes, I definitely agree with that. I think the use of AI in any domain that has a lot of data can show a lot of promise. And I think AI is ready now in a number of medical spaces to show their value. I would include uh, radiology, pathology, diagnostics, as you mentioned, but I would caution entrepreneurs who want to do that. Be very careful because there may be resistance from the hospitals and physicians and even patients. So probably a safe way to enter these markets is not by saying we're better than doctors will replace them, but rather build them as very humble, assistive tools that doctors, radiologists, pathologists can use and they can agree with the outcome and rubber stamp it, or they can um, modify it, or they can rewrite it. And also, I think that it fits the requirement that in terms of medical judgments, there needs to be accountability. And accountability, for now, needs to rest with the physician, not with an AI algorithm or a company. So probably makes sense to build these products as assistive tools that will allow doctors to either improve the quality, the safety of their diagnosis or reduce the amount of time or the increase the number of um, patients they can see because AI is helping to reduce the, um, the, the time they spend on a per MRI or CT basis. So maybe we'll need to enter the market this way as a humble assistive tool that over time, if the AI algorithms prove their efficacy, we'll likely see doctors agree with it more, depend on it more, and ultimately maybe say, hey, for these types of diagnosis, 
AI is better than people. There's no point to waste my time looking at it. I, as a human physician, want to move to an area where the humans can still make better distinctions than AI. And that sort of leads me to segue into the other big uh, issue about AI, which is always about you know the fear of technology, which is you know the physician saying I don't want AI to take my job. Again, it's always been my thesis that this is nonsense. That basically, uh, what AI does, whether it's in a, a business where it just takes away the routine stuff of checking documents, uh, or whether it's in a hospital where it takes away the routine stuff and the human error of checking x-rays it frees people up to do more interesting work where human interaction is much more valuable if you could go and see your doctor famously in the uk we now debate that you don't have enough time to see your doctor you only get five or seven minutes if the doctor can do stuff or have stuff done for them quickly it allows them more time to talk to you and potentially pick up on stuff that ai can't your thesis is obviously that ai is not going to displace jobs it's simply going to change the job market well, for the doctor's jobs, I think it will definitely change the job market and not displace jobs per se. We'll always need the human interaction that the doctor provides and the general common sense knowledge. So AI, once the data is collected, I think AI can do the diagnosis, propose the treatments, and the doctor can either approve it or not approve it. So there is an excellent case of human AI symbiosis. But what this means, however, for the professional physicians is that in the future, the doctors will not so much be judged on how much of a textbook they memorized correctly, but rather they'll be judged on can they connect with the patients, solicit their family history, concerns, problems, and get new information to feed into the AI and also be that connector to the patient. And we know that patients who feel they have a higher likelihood of being cured do have a like higher likelihood of being cured. So doctors who can uh, move them positively is going to be a huge asset. So we're going to have doctors perhaps become much better at interaction and much better at being compassionate caregivers and maybe not being as good memorizers of uh, uh, past cases. So that kind of changes will happen in doctors, teachers, and many other professions. I would say there are some jobs that will be replaced fully. Uh, for example, truck drivers and certain assembly line workers and certain office jobs that require very routine copy pasting, uh, emailing kinds of things. I think these are on path of being replaced. They may not be exactly replace one person with the one piece of software or hardware, but it might be within the pool of all the people of this workload, uh, a certain percentage of the tasks within the workload can be better done by AI AI will do them, then the whole pool of workers will need to be reduced correspondingly because they're handing off that percentage of the workload requirement. Then the humans will do what only humans can do, which is more satisfying, but there will be fewer of them because um, the, the, the part of their tasks that didn't require human uh, exclusive skill set uh, will be outsourced to the AI. One area where politicians may be able to keep their jobs is in the regulation of AI and two areas that interested me where politicians don't necessarily need to create the market because they're not running these markets like they're running healthcare or education. Uh, the two examples you give one is on financial services and another is autonomous driving and again autonomous driving is both often cited as you know 150,000 truck drivers will lose their jobs it's a terrible thing 
But certainly when I got driven around North London the other day by an autonomous vehicle, I was very pleased that the UK government had leaned in to liberate the regulatory environment to allow autonomous driving experimentation. And this was a company that uses AI to constantly learn. And the other was financial services, where you give a brilliant example. The the sci-fi writer gives a brilliant example of what I would say is kind of AI gone rogue, where the insurance company recommends that the guy with the insurance doesn't marry a particular woman (laughs) because it will um, cause him problems, if I can put it that way. So government, and you mentioned it in the context of deep fakes as well, government does need to lean into AI, not just as an enabler, as it is with autonomous driving, but also to prevent sometimes the logical conclusion of where where AI will take you if it's left to its own devices, if I can put it that way. Uh, Yes, I do believe regulations are necessary because this is first time ever that machines can are taking over so much part of our lives. And also we see these little problems emerging from privacy to bias, to the safety of our data, to, um, and especially in cases where uh, the human life is at stake, right? If a medical diagnosis can give us the wrong medicine and kill us, or if an autonomous vehicle is driven by a machine and may run into something and kill us, these are decisions made by a machine that lead to taking lives away from humans. So clearly these are things of, of great concern and uh, worthy of our attention. But at the same time, uh, we have to recognize that historically, many problems caused by technology, we should first think, is there a technological solution? Like when the electricity went to the homes, the governments then didn't just say, let's forbid it, let's regulate it. They actually did not gave enough time for the technologists to invent the circuit breaker to make it safer. And similarly, when internet was plugged into the computer and created lots of viruses, the governments didn't shut off the connection, but rather we had enough patience to wait for technologists to eventually invent antivirus software. So what the point I want to make is for each of the problems we can see for AI to the society, we should first ask, is there a way that technology can address the problem today? If not, should we invest in some technologies that can address it in the future? And of course, in tandem, we can talk about regulations as well as what can other people do? Can investors do better? Should we invest more in subscription models rather than advertising funded models because they'll be less prone to show lots of junk content to the users? Perhaps that's a path. Perhaps should there be third-party watchdogs that look for specific social networks that may have the increasing index of uh, deep fakes or fake news, and then they should be rated accordingly. These should give them motivation to work hard on improving the social goodness by their application. And if they don't, the, the consequence might be that they would get a poor rating, users would desert them, and investors might also run away. So I think it it needs to come from government regulations, uh, societal third-party watchdog and metrics, and most importantly, there needs to be technologies that investigate it on whether they can prevent the bad things that might happen from other technologies. Can I ask, I I want to end on two kind of existential questions. One issue, uh, I think I'm right in saying, you don't address in the book is defense. And when people say, AI will kill us all because the robots will kill us all. Isn't one way that AI might kill us all is that by launching a nuclear strike. So clearly, one of the biggest ethical issues facing the use of artificial intelligence 
is its use in armed conflict where an autonomous drone driven by AI makes its own decisions to strike. Right. Why did you not cover defense in your book? And what do you have a view on AI and, and its role in defense? Yeah, I covered it to some extent with the terrorists who uses autonomous weapons to, yes. to, to do genocide on a certain group of people. And I think one can extrapolate that to governments and countries and, and also uh, wartime behavior. I think autonomous weapons are a, a very, very dangerous, basically dangerous slippery slope that we can begin by saying, oh, we're just creating some, some autonomous vehicles to carry weapons for us. Uh, of course, they have to defend themselves, so there are some guns. And then, uh, yeah, we can have them shoot at the enemy, uh, but only the enemy. And then you can say, okay, we'll always have a human in the loop, um, but except when. <laughs> or yeah, human in the loop is only is watching a thousand tanks at the same time. And then the slippery slope leads to more and more autonomous weapons, which ultimately are machines that can make decisions that can kill a massive number of people with incredible accuracy, as well as um, they can identify the people, whether it's with facial recognition or cell signal or other things. So we essentially autonomous weapons can and will become very accurate, lethal assassins that can kill, kill and assassinate any one person or one group of people. And, and what's worse is that they're not traceable. So terrorist groups and uh, non-state actors can use them without too much fear of being caught. And also they're not so much subject to the principles of massive mutual destruction. That's what has kept human race in check despite having nuclear weapons. You don't launch a nuclear strike against another country for the fear that they might strike back before they're, they, before they're vaporized then you'll be vaporized too. So that's why no country has launched nuclear weapons. But autonomous weapons are targeted precision striking. Think about this as a, you know, a very tiny drone, the size of a big insect that carries enough poison or dynamite, finds the person that it is programmed to kill and kills that person with high accuracy. Seek, find, and kill. So that is the danger and that can be extrapolated to you know, millions of such little drones it can also be taken not just by states, but by terrorists and non-state actors. So I do feel this is a quite a serious issue. It's not quite an AI issue. It's a combination of AI, drones, robotics, weapons. And uh, I think they all need governments to start to look at how do we contain this? How do we not get to such a terrible outcome? Um, at the same time, most major countries uh, refused to look at regulation of autonomous weapons, when, although they're clearly as dangerous as chemical or biological weapons. So what gives me hope is that at some point, come to their, people come to their senses, that ultimately, when chemists and biologists say, hey, this is really dangerous, stop it, the countries did work together to slow down, control, regulate, or even ban chemical and biological weapons. So the AI scientists have both have spoken. Thousands of AI scientists, including non-AI scientists like Elon Musk and um, the late Stephen Hawking, have joined the petition that says, please look at considering how do we ban or regulate autonomous weapons. So I, like all of these AI scientists, feel like this is a subject that needs uh, attention by the governments, but so far it's uh, fallen on deaf ears.
Well, I'm glad I asked you the question then, because I think that's an, an incredibly important point. So let me just do a, a massive clanking gear change from mass destruction with my final question, which is your final chapter. Can AI make us happy? Right. I think it's certainly possible. What role can it play in making us happy? The benign dictator who knows our every wish through artificial intelligence. Well, if AI, anything that can be measured, AI can use to optimize. So if we can measure our reaction to content or to interaction or to experiences, and if our reaction, our reaction today to the likes of TikTok and uh, YouTube is click-throughs, but that's too trivial. Better reaction would be, you know, dilation of our pupil, uh, gener uh, that, that our hormones are being pro produced that indicate happiness, excitement, and so on, or maybe longer term things that after watching this video, I became interested and learned a whole new subject and became smarter over time. So if AI can track these things, not just on simple click-throughs, but on more complex reaction, biological and others, and also look longer term, I don't see why AI can't improve itself from measuring how much we just give the Pavlovian response to click, click, watch, watch on videos, but rather more deeper behavior. So I'm optimistic that in the very long term, we can use AI to shape ourselves, shape our children, to be infused into education, entertainment, daily lives, so that we're, we become better people, we become happier people, we become more knowledgeable people. The general structure supports it. The AI's capabilities can be grown to encompass it, but we don't know the specific ways that work yet. But I think that's why, uh, you know, in a book like this, uh, it's important to point out things that uh, we think can be done in the 20, 30 year time frame. I can't program it today, but it seems quite conceivable that it can be done because our happiness can, you know, at a certain level, the extent be measured. And so can our uh, wisdom, our knowledge, our likability. And if we can measure these and use them to use the power of AI to feed back, to show us content, lead us down paths and uh, interact with us in ways that will make us better versions of ourselves, whether it's uh, smarter or more liked or happier. Uh, I think that's what AI should be used for. And I hope more researchers will look at into, the, into these topics because they, be, they belong kind of to a category of not yet solved, but appear solvable problems. Brilliant. Well, Kaifu, thank you so much for, I took you at a canter through quite a lot of issues, uh, but I've wanted to have you on this podcast for a very, very long time. And you've given certainly me uh, a lot of food for thought. And I certainly hope people listening to this, uh, a lot of food for thought. There are massive, massive opportunities in use for artificial intelligence. There's needs to be a massive focus on adoption of AI in public use cases, but also eternal vigilance. Uh, in terms of the implications of using AI. And thank you. I can't think of anyone better to discuss the subject. And I have to say AI 2041, I'd recommend to anyone as a really imaginative and interesting way to approach a series of really complex and interesting issues that AI throws up. Thank you so much for your time. Well, thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Vasey View, a production of Kindred Media.